0: Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, we visited two breast oncology research practices and met with several patients and their oncology nurses and physicians. To begin, Dr. Kim Blackwell of Duke University tells us about a 40-year-old woman who had a very difficult time with a TCH regimen does a taxol-carboplatinum trastuzumab given as neoadjuvant treatment for HER2-positive breast cancer?
1: I met the patient after she had seen a breast-dedicated surgeon, and as frequently happens, the surgeon had referred her for consultation because she had a tumor that was over two centimeters. And we also knew at the time she was referred to see me that her cancer was HER2 overexpressing, or frequently referred to as positive. And so from that fact, knowing that her tumor was over two centimeters and that she would derive some benefit from the use of the drug trastuzumab or Herceptin, the surgeon had referred her to see me to see if it would be a good idea to do trastuzumab-based therapy prior to her definitive surgery.
0: And I guess we should also add that her tumor was ERPR negative. Correct. Correct. So what were you thinking about at that point? I guess the question would be, what would the purpose be of doing the systemic therapy before surgery as opposed to waiting till after surgery?
1: Well, there's some pros and cons to doing systemic chemotherapy and trastuzumab prior to what I refer to as a definitive surgery. So that's either the lumpectomy or a mastectomy in certain circumstances. The bottom line is it makes the surgeon's job easier. Surgeons probably don't like me saying that too much, but it's just common sense to me that shrinking a tumor before a surgeon goes in to surgically remove it should make someone's job easier. Now, in terms of the data we have that relates to the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we know that the chances of a woman's cancer coming back is no different regardless of whether she receives chemo before surgery, known as neoadjuvant chemotherapy, or she receives chemotherapy after surgery. So in terms of the chance of the cancer coming back somewhere else in the body, it really doesn't matter whether the chemo is given prior to surgery or after surgery. Where it makes a difference, and as I easily summarized as making the surgeon's job easier, is that we know in tumors that are greater than 4 centimeters, patients are four times more likely to have negative margins at the time of their definitive surgery if they receive chemo prior to definitive surgery. And although not well documented for a patient that has involvement of the lymph nodes of her armpit, I would hope that by shrinking the tumor in the axillary area or the armpit that the surgeon would be able to remove the lymph nodes easier and hence hopefully without any data would translate to a less incidence of post-surgical morbidity such as lymphedema. Now the con of doing chemotherapy before definitive surgery is it sometimes takes a lot of prep work. you got to know where the tumor is. Sometimes that requires an MRI. Sometimes it even requires the patient going back and having additional clips placed in the tumor because although giving chemo before surgery, its main goal is to make the surgeon's job easier, if you don't know where the tumor was to begin with, and for the instance of this patient where she is looking at about a 40% chance of the cancer not being there at all after you're done, You really have to map out and work with the surgeon exactly where the cancer is prior to starting neoadjuvant therapy. So I think to summarize, the pro to giving treatment before definitive surgery is by shrinking the tumor, there's some data and some common sense thinking, at least in my mind, that making the tumor smaller would make the surgeon's job easier and relate to a better surgical outcome for patients. The con to doing the treatment before definitive surgery is really it takes some time to make certain you understand exactly where the tumor is and where it's not, both in the breast and underneath the arm.
0: Now, this woman actually also had a sentinel node procedure done, and that was negative. There were three sentinel nodes that were identified. How did that factor into the way you thought this through?
1: Sure. So that's kind of what I was alluding to and saying that it takes some groundwork before you get started. Sometimes it's difficult for patients to have to undergo two surgical procedures versus sentinel lymph node, because I would like to use that information in predicting what are the chances of the cancer coming back if she doesn't receive therapy, because lymph node status is important in making that calculation. And then they have to go back for definitive surgery after they've received neoadjuvant therapy. The way I used it in this patient is that we had her accurately staged prior to initiating neoadjuvant therapy, and this is a patient where the lymph nodes were negative, and although her tumor was not eligible for the benefits of adjuvant, anti-hormonal, or endocrine therapy, I knew that I would feel comfortable with her receiving a non-anthracycline-based regimen because at the time, we still had... Limited data comparing adriamycin based, trastuzumab based regimens with regimens such as docetaxel carboplatin and trastuzumab.
0: And that's been a really tough decision now for the last five years, ever since these adjuvant studies came out in HER2 positive disease with trastuzumab. You know, the TCH regimen being a common regimen that people use. And then, as you say, anthracyclines and taxane with trastuzumab. Where are we right now with that decision in general?
1: Well, in my mind, the data still support the fact that there is not a large difference between adriamycin followed by a taxane with concurrent herceptin, or a non-anthracycline based regimen such as docetaxel carboplatin herceptin. My thinking about this patient and which regimen I wanted to use prior to definitive surgery somewhat was driven by the fact that I like to initiate trastuzumab as soon as possible. So in this patient where she was node negative and young, and I wanted to avoid any potential cardiac toxicity... I chose the TCH, that's carboplatin, Herceptin regimen, in part because it's been shown to be equivalent to the anthracycline-based regimens. But in the neoadjuvant setting, I think there's a benefit, which is she's getting the Herceptin started from day one. And many of us believe that Herceptin or trastuzumab is actually as effective, if not more effective, in preventing breast cancer from coming back than even chemotherapy.
0: Now, before we get farther into her case... Her situation also brings up the issue of using chemo in women who have node negative, her two positive tumors. Now, in her situation, the tumor is you know more than two centimeters, so that's not a low risk situation. But there are women who have small tumors that are node negative, half a centimeter, or a centimeter. What's been the thinking there in terms of whether or not to use chemotherapy and trastuzumab?
1: Well. For T1, those are tumors less than 2-centimeter breast cancers. Many of the adjuvant studies excluded these small tumors that are node negative. So in terms of prospective data, the study that collected the most data was BCIRG006, where they allowed lymph node negative patients very early on, but they still excluded tumors that were very small. And the thinking had been in part driven by the fact that trastuzumab's benefits, at least while being studied, were tightly linked to using it alongside of chemotherapy. And historically, our thinking about chemotherapy in small tumors has been, given the risk of breast cancer recurrence being very low in these small one-centimeter breast cancers, you can't reduce a low risk any further with chemotherapy. So historically, we've excluded small tumors from chemotherapy trials, and therefore, these patients were excluded from the adjuvant Herceptin studies. Now, recently, groups such as the British Columbia Breast Cancer Research Group, led by Steve Chia, and the MD Anderson breast group led by Ana Maria Gonzalez have actually looked at data sets in their records of patients who have been treated at both of these institutions and ask a very good question. Are small tumors that are HER2 amplified or overexpressing, are they worse actors or better actors or are they the same as small tumors that are HER2 normal or HER2 no negative? And what they found was that, in fact, HER2 overexpressing tumors are bad actors, and they have a much worse prognosis than similarly sized tumors that are HER2 normal. And therefore, that's really driven my decision-making and saying, although patients were excluded from the adjuvant trastuzumab trials, we know that the prognosis, even with a small tumor of a HER2 overexpressing tumor is worse. And therefore, I offer patients with small tumors the benefits of adjuvant or neoadjuvant trastuzumab, but it's also having to be linked with chemotherapy. So the downside is that patients with small tumors, unfortunately, are having to be subjected to the potential side effects of chemotherapy in order to get the benefits of trastuzumab-based therapy.
0: So for these reasons, you decided to give this lady the TCH regimen. Can you talk about what happened?
1: Yeah, so this is an example of where you don't want to scare patients and give them every possible side effect that could happen. But at the same time, you want to educate patients and enable them to make a truly informed consent. And in my mind, that's understanding the potential benefits as well as the potential risk. I think most of us, even those of us who give chemotherapy every day, if you actually sat down and read each of the package inserts for each of the drugs that we give patients, it's hard to imagine that people aren't just frightened to death prior to starting any type of therapy, but in particular chemotherapy. And even trastuzumab has its associated side effects. So this was a case where I quoted the patient a risk of about 5 to 6% chance of having an infection while receiving the therapy, not just with the first cycle, but ever, as well as any other possible side effects. And because she was young and had really no significant cardiac risk factors that I was aware of, I also quoted her about a 1% to 1.5% chance of some type of cardiac damage from the trastuzumab. And so what actually ended up happening, if you were a betting person, you would have bet she wouldn't have had any problems.
0: Now, I know that this patient did well for the first cycle of treatment, but then on cycle two, she had to be hospitalized for skin rash, fever, and neutropenia. What happened? There was no
1: source identified for her fever, and she recovered having received IV antibiotics, and after her counts recovered, she returned home. In addition, she had this rash, it's the classic pick up the phone, the patient's calling saying I have a rash, and my response is I have no idea what the rash is from because almost every drug we give with chemotherapy, especially the taxanes, docetaxel and paclitaxel being the usual suspects, as well as Herceptin can lead to drug-associated rashes, So frequently, patients will call with complaints of rashes, and we have no idea what they're from. She had an extensive evaluation while an inpatient at Duke Medical Center, and her rash was so significant that at some point, the question was even raised whether or not that she had disseminated HSV or herpes virus. It ended up not being that, but you can imagine not only was she in the hospital with febrile neutropenia, but then she was placed on isolation for this possible cause of her rash. So she ended up sitting in a hospital room with respiratory isolation, people having to come in with masks and gowns for, I think, a total of four or five days. And so she recovered completely, but this was not a cycle two that I would have predicted really for any patient.
0: What happened with the rash?
1: So the rash resolved and she ended up taking topical steroids. One of the things that I've come to appreciate is how little dermatology I learned in medical school, little to none. To be quite honest, I could probably identify a skin cancer, a melanoma, and maybe shingles. I think I'm pretty good with shingles. But other than that, rashes fall into this big vault of. I have no idea what's causing them. I usually try to seem educated when I'm trying to talk to the patient and say stuff like, have you changed your laundry detergent? Have you changed your soap? And almost inevitably the answer is no, no, and no. And so I've really learned to value my dermatology colleagues because they've helped me tremendously in providing guidance as to what the leading suspects are for a rash. And it just so happened she ended up having to be in the hospital because of her febrile neutropenia. So we were able to get some really valuable support from our dermatology colleagues.
0: So did the rash ever come back incidentally?
1: Yeah, the rash continued throughout, but not to the severity it did with cycle two. And at one point, she was placed on GCSF support with nulasta. And we frequently will see a rash similar to hers with even the GCSF support. And to make a long story short, we ended up playing around with nulasta, but it caused severe bone pain. So then we tried nupigen because of early neutropenia. And as we were messing around with it, it seemed like the rash did kind of correlate with her total white blood cell count. And so my suspicion was is that she had some type of drug eruption, but then she had a pretty late but strong increase in her white blood cells to the GCSF support. And I think there was some correlation there, but I couldn't prove that to you.
0: So what happened with her entire course of TCH in terms of side effects as well as the tumor?
1: Yeah, so this is a patient that I wouldn't have expected to have problems with neutropenia. We don't routinely support the TCH regimen with growth factor support, but because of her febrile neutropenia, we then incorporated new support with cycle two. And I believe it was the third or fourth cycle that she was nadering and becoming neutropenia prior to day eight. So what was happening is, at least my explanation, is the new LASTA wasn't kicking in fast enough. And I've seen this frequently in young women where you tell them, oh, the new last is going to prevent them from having neutropenia, but it just doesn't kick in soon enough. My guess is it's because the bone marrow is so healthy and these women, these young women have never seen a lot of medications, their bone marrow is not used to being beat up, that they actually dry up their counts too soon, or sooner than perhaps an older patient. That's a broad generalization, but I tend to see these early drops in counts in young women more so than older women, especially with Neulasta support. So the third or fourth cycle, she actually ended up with febrile neutropenia on Neulasta support. And at that point, I made the decision to switch her from lasta to Neupogen and initiate it 48 hours after her chemotherapy. The nupogen actually kicked in earlier than the nulasta, but led to much more significant bone pain. And so the patient, by the sixth cycle, we were near the finish line, to be quite honest, I uh, gave her a choice. You can either have nulasta with the risk of an early nadir in your counts, as we saw with the second, third, and fourth of the six cycles, or you can have the nupogen, And she actually elected to have the nulasta, the pegylated GCSF, with the sixth cycle.
0: So I know this lady went to surgery, she had her lumpectomy as well as bilateral breast reduction, and pathologically, you had sent me the pathology, it showed rare microscopic foci, each less than one millimeter of invasive ductal cancer, still ERPR negative, HER2 positive. So it sounds like she had a lot of tumor clearing.
1: Yeah, sure. So this is what we like to see. In fact, we've actually changed our pathology reports recently, and there's a line in there that says neoadjuvant therapy response. And in HERs, this is definitely an extensive response to the combination of dose carboplatin and Herceptin. And in fact, the way I explain it to patients is that if we can take a 2.5-centimeter tumor, and kill it down to just single cells or small clusters of cells, my hope would be that that one cell that's somewhere else in the body, you know, kind of gets blown out of the water. And this is the response that all of us like to see to neoadjuvant therapy. This is very reassuring to a medical oncologist. This type of response really predicts a very good outcome long term. And that is in stark contrast to a patient who starts off with a 2.5-centimeter tumor, gets six cycles of chemo, whatever it might be, and still has 2.5 centimeters of tumor without any evidence that the cancer has died. That's a patient that I worry much, much more about than the patient we're discussing today.
0: So this lady then, after her surgery, I guess she's had her chemo with the trastuzumab pre-op, but then the issue becomes, you know, trastuzumab by itself in the trials It was then given, you know, up to a year. Correct. So,
1: This is a patient that I start the clock with the first dose of trastuzumab and continue it for 52 weeks. We try to avoid any breaks in the trastuzumab therapy around surgery. So usually you can get a three-week dose in. When you're seeing them back, usually we'll see the patient back to kind of clear them for surgery, check their counts, make certain that they don't have any toxicity from their last cycle and final cycle of chemotherapy and frequently i will defer doing the heart testing until after the definitive surgery i think it's a for me it's a better time to do it patients sometimes will undergo a general anesthetic for their definitive surgery sometimes not but I like to know what the heart's doing after the chemo combination and after definitive surgery prior to reinitiation of it, especially if the patient is going to be receiving concurrent radiation, and in particular if they're receiving radiation for a left-sided breast cancer where the heart could be involved in the radiation field.
0: So what did this woman's MAGA scan show?
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting case, although I'm not infrequent She showed a 9% drop in her total ejection fraction, and although it still remained within the normal limits at 54% from our institution, that's within anything greater than 50% is considered normal range on our MUGA scan, it does make you kind of stop and scratch your head and say, is this important, is it not? It's an absolute decline, but where is the cutoff for where we really start to worry or where we would delay restarting the trastuzumab? In this case, we had a discussion with her. She was going to go on to receive radiation, if I remember correctly. And for that reason, we elected, even though 9% doesn't meet the criteria in the adjuvant trials for holding the Herceptin, and she was still within the normal range, I said, you know what, let's hold off on it for six weeks while you're getting the radiation. Let's recheck it. It would make me feel better. I really don't think this means anything, but let's just be on the safe side. And so what we did was ended up holding it while she was receiving her radiation and then reinitiating it. Um, her EF came back, I believe, to 58%, 59%, so 4 or 5%, and well within the normal limits of our MUGA scanning and very close to where she had started.
0: So how is she doing right now, and do you feel that she's kind of recovered from the chemotherapy?
1: Well, I tell patients it takes at least a year to get back to anywhere close to where they started. And I think there's this just incredible adrenaline, emotional period at the time of the first diagnosis And patients are so focused on finishing chemo, in this case with six cycles of chemo, that they don't spend a lot of time taking good care of themselves. I'm not really necessarily talking about this patient particularly, but the focus for the first 15, 16 weeks in almost every patient I see is, let's just get through this. And then they have a big surgery, and then frequently they have radiation, and then they come back and see me, let's say a month after they've done all of this treatment and say, I just don't feel good. And the reality is I think that's an unfair standard. I tell patients the expectation is it will take a year from the time that you finish to the time where you feel back to normal. In addition, there's a real emotional recovery that I think sinks in at about four to six months. Most women have had pretty significant surgery. They've had fatigue Frequently, their lifestyles have been in such upheaval that they're not exercising like they used to. And that's not even a criticism. That's because I'm so busy with my cancer care, I can't find the time. Frequently, patients have children that they're taking care of. They're trying to work full time. And they didn't really have time set aside for their cancer treatment. And unfortunately, they have to set that time aside. But they also need to set time aside to recover from what they've been through. So, Without specifically addressing where this patient is, she's on the right trajectory in my mind, but she's still got some time to get to feeling back to where she was when she started.
0: So this has been a challenge for her, of course. Anybody who went through what you just described, this is a real challenge. What have you observed in terms of her as a person and her family as she's going through this?
1: Well, it'd be interesting for her and I to have a discussion about this because, you know, we get such a, as physicians, we get such a limited view into these people's lives. We're so lucky that we become a part of their life for a period of time, but life goes on and then we see them much less frequently when they're done with their chemotherapy. And I do think it's a whole team of people that help me take care of her and hopefully help her with her recovery. So I think in particular, she's so incredibly lucky. She had a very supportive spouse who I'm constantly amazed. Erin, my nurse practitioner, and I are always saying we see the worst of marriages and we see the best of marriages. And nothing brings out which direction a marriage is going in than a diagnosis of breast cancer And I can tell you that not only did I see a supportive family structure that played such a critical role, and I remember in particular her husband asking me kind of on the sideline, you know, what can I do to help? I remember coming up to the hospital the first cycle and she being in respiratory isolation. Everyone was kind of scared that there was something going on that shouldn't be going on. Because I had told them this shouldn't be going on. <laughs> and in fact, what I saw was a very supportive family that probably pulled together better than most families in terms of the recovery. I'll tell you, no one comes out of breast cancer treatment without being a stronger person. That's my own personal feeling. And I always tell patients, although I sometimes ponder how I would feel if someone told this to me, that at some point there will be good that comes out of this. It's just hard to see right now. And I think in particular... Not only in the patient that, you know, we're talking to and talking about today, but many patients, they come back frequently and say, I found the good in this. And sometimes, unfortunately, as physicians, we don't have time to help patients define what it is that's good. That's where nurses, in particular, nurse practitioners have time to work on, you know, helping patients with what I call the survival plan. I get to talk about the treatment plan and the biology plan and the prognosis and bringing it all together. And I think there's a survivorship plan that we all work together in helping patients move forward. And part of that is finding the good that comes out of it once you're finished with your treatment.
0: I was really fascinated as she described the fact that she asked a different person to come with her for each chemo treatment, her husband or family. And eventually, for trastuzumab alone, I think she brought her son, who's, I believe, 12, is it? Yeah. So it really impressed me that she was able to kind of immediately see that she needed her family and wanted to get them involved. I don't know how often you see that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a rule, which is a little different than some of the other physicians in my practice, but my rule is you can't come and get chemo by yourself. Hmm. And when I first tell patients that, in fact, I saw a couple new patients yesterday who are being initiated on adjuvant chemo, and I tell them that, the first thing when I look in their eyes I see is, oh my goodness, does that mean I'm just going to be so sick? And that frequently happens. And then I have to kind of back up and say, no, this is my rule. If you really want to be depressed, then come get chemo by yourself. But the reason that you need someone with you is because you need a second set of ears so you can focus on just being there and receiving the treatment. And it is a scary place, treatment rooms. You know, sometimes we get a little jaded in oncology. You know, I remember for a while people would say, where's the treatment room? And I'd say, well, it's where all the, you know, people without hair are. Not because I was trying to make fun of their situation, but the reality is it's a pretty depressing place. Now, it can be an incredible place. There's some just real joy up there that's, I walk up to our treatment room not as frequently as I probably should. And I go up there and I realize that for all the sickness that's up there, I see a lot of happiness. And in particular, having someone, whether it be a friend or family member with you during that time has nothing to do with whether a patient's gonna be sick or not. It has to do with making certain that you're not facing this alone. And so I frequently will say to patients, get out a calendar, it's six visits. Put your support team, I always say, you can have as many people on your bus as you want. You gotta know where you're going, who's the navigator and who's the driver, but then load up the bus. And the other thing that I frequently will tell patients is, if your friend or family member was in the same situation as you, you would be the first person to ask, how can I help? I've done it, everyone does it. And you should say to them, well, this is how you can help me because you would do it for them. And so I think in particular, she was very good at saying, and I hate to say it, but a lot of women are really good at multitasking. (laughs) And so this was just, how do I fit this in? And who, because Dr. Blackwell says, I need someone with me. And very frequently people come back and say, I'm really glad that I brought someone with me because I was just a mess and I couldn't hear what the nurses were saying that day.
0: What about the issue of minor children? I don't know how often patients ask you for advice or you go ahead and give them advice, but I know that is a really vexing problem and, of course, kind of depends on what the situation is. Any sort of global approach that you have to that?
1: Yeah. Well, as a mother of a 5- and a 7-year-old, I'm constantly amazed at how perceptive children are, and it's not uncommon. I saw a patient last week, very young, very young, 41 years old, with early-stage breast cancer, getting ready to lose all her hair and initiate docetaxel cytoxin therapy. And I went through all this possible side effects and the nausea medicines, and at the end, tears kind of welled up, and she said, you know, I can deal with all this. I just don't know how to tell my 6-year-old daughter. And um, I think I answered her as honestly as I could, which is basically I think your daughter probably gets it more than we give her credit for. I've met her daughter once and that I would be very honest with her. And in particular, in patients who have metastatic breast cancer, who are in the hospital, especially towards the end of life, I'm a big advocate of having the children around. And, you know, it's sometimes, it's very interesting because some patients, their kids are there every day with them, especially in the metastatic setting. And then there's other patients whose children have never seen their parents sick in the hospital, their mother's sick in the hospital. And I can't answer the question because I've not been in the situation. I think it's something, though, that physicians and nurses should address with the patient because the patient doesn't know what to do. Should I bring the child? Should I not bring the child? Not so much in the early stage setting where it's you know definitive six treatments, but frequently we have patients that are coming every single week And, you know, two, three hours a week, and if there's an opportunity for the children to be part of it in a safe way, I personally don't see much of a problem with it. I can understand why there might be some practical issues in having minor children around, but there's no time to waste when you got cancer. And in particular, as mothers who are receiving treatment, I find it particularly important for them to have their children around. My five-year-old the other day offered to help bury me when I died. Wow. He just was curious as to how big a hole he was going to have to
0: wow. dig.
1: So we had a dog that died about a month earlier, wow. and this experience of burying the dog, he huh. just, without a lot of hesitation, understood that the dog was in heaven, that the dog needed to be buried. This was a dog that had been with him his entire life. And he seems to have a, and I think most children, it's pretty impressive to me that the stigmata of death that we address as adults and the fears surrounding death, children just don't share with, they don't have that concept. So I think in particular, it's an individual decision, but I could see where the whole medical team should at least ask the patient. We frequently don't ask, you know. Who's taking care of the children today? I'm saying I don't ask it frequently enough. And who's going to take care of the children while you're getting your treatments? And those are big issues for young moms or even older moms with children. Who's going to be there when the treatment room's running late and the child's getting off the bus at 3 o'clock and no one's there to pick them up? It's not infrequent that that occurs in our clinic.
0: Final question, how does medical oncology practice, and in your situation, breast cancer specifically, affect you as a person? Hmm. You
1: keep asking me that, and I keep (laughs) giving you different answers. So let me me think about how I feel about today. Well, I'll tell you, I feel real lucky because I've learned a lesson that most people don't learn until they actually face a life-threatening illness, which is, you know, there's no time to waste. And I had a patient yesterday, in fact, one of my newer patients say, you know, I told her all her staging studies were negative, but she's got a stage three, pretty bad, triple negative breast cancer. She's going to need to receive a fair amount of chemotherapy. That was the discussion we had. And she said, you know what, I just feel so blessed. I have a loving husband. I'm not in pain. I feel good. You know, bring on the chemotherapy. But this concept of you know not obsessing about why i got the cancer and not obsessing about what's going to happen a year from now and being present for me personally is a lesson i've learned from my patients about being present and it certainly has made me a better parent probably a better person i hope a better doctor
0: when someone asked you you know well, what do you do to try to keep your sort of emotional and balance <laughs> and you know physical and mental health
1: um, well, yeah, I say that or maybe I, you don't. <laughs> no, well, I do a lot of yoga. There's a hmm. lot of yoga breaths, and you're getting ready to speak with my nurse practitioner. She'll tell you it's not uncommon during the course of a clinic day for me to be doing some deep yoga breathing before the day is out. And again, this concept of there's no time to waste, really, what brings me happiness because being a, whether you're a cancer patient or a cancer doctor you got a really good reason to throw all the garbage in your life into the garbage can. I frequently will tell patients that. you got a good excuse to get rid of the garbage. So I do focus on stuff like yoga and spending time with my children because there's no time to waste.